0: Welcome to the Math Ed Podcast, and thank you so much for listening. It's been a very good year for the podcast. Thank you so much for your support. Um, we're going to round out the 2014 season with Charles Munter, who's an assistant professor of mathematics education in the School of Education at the University of Pittsburgh. Chuck, thanks so much for talking with us. Thank you. We're going to be digging into Chuck's article that was recently published in the Journal for Research in Mathematics Education, Volume 45. And that article is Developing Visions of High-Quality Mathematics Instruction. But we're going to hold off on that article for a second because I want um, Chuck to back up first and just hear about your graduate school experience because I know your dissertation was actually on a little bit different topic than this article.
1: That's true. I did my doctoral work at Vanderbilt University. My advisor was Paul Cobb, and I worked on two research projects with him. One is the study that we refer to as MIST, and that's where the paper that we're going to talk about originated. The other was what my dissertation came from, and that was an evaluation study of a first grade tutoring program called Math Recovery. And I'm not all that interested in pursuing a research trajectory on early number, but the study gave us an interesting problem to work on, and that was assessing fidelity of implementation of an intervention that is very diagnostic in nature, where it's up to the tutor to figure out what the kid is currently thinking as a way to inform what tasks they need to pose next. And so mm-hmm. it's not as simple as following a script to determine whether the tutor did what they were supposed to. It's uh, much more complex than that. And so it was, a, it was a fun challenge to work on for a dissertation. mm
0: mm-hmm. So you were involved in the MIST project, which is a large-scale project, um, An episode 1420 of the podcast also deals with that same project. So how did this particular study in JRME, where you're looking at the teachers and the district leaders' um, visions of math instruction, how did that grow out of the MIST project?
1: Yeah, uh, first of all, the, that, the acronym stands for Middle School Mathematics in the Institutional Setting of Teaching, and the project was broadly about investigating what it takes to support instructional improvement at scale. One of the leading conjectures or hypotheses the project had at the outset was that a shared instructional vision might matter um, among teachers and instructional leaders. And we thought about how we would pursue that, and it seemed that we might want to have a way to assess individuals' instructional visions as one way to then investigate to the extent to which notions of high-quality instruction are shared across multiple players so that's where it started it was simply about trying to have a way to understand how any given individual teacher or principal or math coach or district leader thinks about high quality mathematics instruction Mm
0: -hmm. and i'm specifically curious about the adjective high quality i feel like as a field we really grapple with how to describe what we've what we value in mathematics teaching so i'm thinking of like the nctm community Some people want to talk about kind of reform-type teaching, but then that seems like it's kind of a temporary title because if you ever achieved your reform, it would really no longer be reform. It would kind of now be the standard way of teaching. Um, Or people will try to use descriptive things like exploratory or student-centered or dialogic or investigative or all these different descriptive things versus other descriptors like teacher-centered or traditional or so there's there's kind of this mess of adjectives to use to describe math instruction so what was your rationale for actually taking a stance and saying high quality instruction and I mean certain things by high quality math instruction
1: yeah the title of the paper developing visions of high quality instruction is a bit of a double entendre and it's obviously in one way related to how individuals ideas or perceptions of high-quality instruction may change over time. But secondly, it's kind of a suggestion that our field is developing or converging on an instructional vision. And I think that's been going on for many more years than I've been contributing or trying to contribute to the field. And so, yeah, it's kind of a a suggestion that let's, let's just step up and start calling the things that we've identified and have evidence for As high quality instruction. I agree that there's no shortage of adjectives for describing various pedagogies. I think that inquiry-based isn't a bad one, um, although I think that becomes problematic when people disagree about what inquiry is, which apparently is even worse in science ed than it is math ed. Mm -hmm. I tend to use the adjective dialogic instruction if I'm trying to distinguish the kind of teaching that I would promote as opposed to other kinds of teaching. But given that this project was conducted in settings in which district leaders were pursuing an instructional vision aligned with what NCTM and mathematics education more broadly has promoted, and given that I wrote this paper for JRME, Mm -hmm. um, I don't think I necessarily need to use an adjective like dialogic. So another adjective that is popular right now is ambitious, and Mm. I agree that relative to what is typical in classrooms, The kind of instruction that people that use that adjective are talking about is ambitious, but I am hoping that in the future it's not ambitious, it's just high quality. And we probably over-analogize to the medical profession in education, but this is one case in which I think it's a, a good fit, and that is that when I go to my doctor, what I'm looking for in my healthcare is not ambitious care. I don't want my my doctor to say that he or she is going to give me ambitious health care. I really just want high-quality care that's based Mm -hmm. on current, robust evidence of of how people will get well. And so I think we should want the same thing for our children in math classrooms.
0: Mm -hmm. So taking that notion of high-quality math instruction how would you characterize the main purpose of this study? Because I know in MIST it's kind of a larger project, and I know for you, you have a larger research agenda around this issue. But what would you say is the the one main purpose that's contributed by this study in particular?
1: Well, like I said, its its origins are thinking about how shared vision might get established. And so it gives us one possible means for tracking that. But... That's obviously not what this paper reports. So the main purpose here is about understanding, first of all, what learning trajectories might look like in settings where this kind of instruction is being promoted through professional development. And this has two purposes, I guess. One for understanding something as researchers, but then a second purpose is potentially understanding it as people who are in charge of supporting those teachers and others learning. So from a research standpoint, It's interesting to have a model, I think, of of what teachers and others' learning will look like over time. And it's interesting to then relate it to other aspects of these settings that we are studying. And then, secondly, the folks who are in charge of supporting that learning, I think it can provide a kind of roadmap for what it is going to look like. As I argue in the paper, you know, the field has a pretty good picture of what high-quality instruction looks like. We have several instances that have been studied very thoroughly, and we've named things in, in concrete terms, and that's really helpful, except that if you then go into any given classroom and you want to support that teacher in achieving that kind of pedagogy on a regular basis, it's a huge jump just to go from what you may find in a classroom to what gets written about in math ed literature. So it might be helpful to have some sense of uh, steps along the way you can expect people to pass through Mm -hmm. in both practice and also, as this paper outlines, um, the way they talk about their practice.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and in the article in Jeremy, you present an actual interview-based instrument for characterizing teachers or others' instructional leaders, their vision of high-quality math instruction, and then tracing it over time. And part of it's included in the actual... Article, and then you have more supplementary material for the instrument that's available on the NCTM website, if I have that correct, right?
1: Yes, that's correct. The rubrics that are in the print version are a little abbreviated, so there's a link to get the full rubrics.
0: Mm-hmm. And so, what was the data that you had available to you through the MISS project that was the data on which you were able to develop and then actually test out this instrument for instructional vision?
1: I used interview data to develop the The rubrics and really just particular portions of the interviews we conducted. We asked people a pretty standard first question and that was if you were to observe one or more lessons in a math classroom, what would you look for to determine whether the instruction is high quality? And then we would let them talk and we would ask them, you know, about anything they named. We would ask, why do you think that's important to get them talking about the kind of underlying function that something they named would serve and then we realized fairly early on that there were particular dimensions that were going to be more prevalent in responses than others and so we started probing on those specifically so we could track specific things over time across people and those were the the role of the teacher the nature of tasks and discussion in the classroom so if they didn't already say something about it we would say can you describe what you would expect To see the teacher doing, if it was high quality instruction, can you describe what discussion would look or sound like if it was high quality instruction, et cetera?
0: Mm -hmm. And how many interviews are we talking about here?
1: (laughs) Oh, I think um, over a thousand.
0: It's a large number. And it's teachers and the math coordinators, and it's also administrators, right?
1: That's correct. Yeah, four different, four distinct role groups teachers, and this is middle school again, sixth, seventh, and eighth grades, principals, math coaches. And district leaders.
0: Mm -hmm. And then you also had interviews from different years so that you could kind of test out the instrument to see if it detects changes over time.
1: That's correct. The MIST project is still going. It's in its eighth and I think final year. It began with four districts and we studied those districts for four years and two of the districts have continued for another four years. But this paper is about data collected over those first four years across the four districts.
0: My guest is Chuck Munter from the University of Pittsburgh. So uh, I want to dig in now to the heart of this, um, the instrument that you've developed about visions of high-quality math instruction. So VHQMI is the acronym used in the paper. So can you take us through now in a little more detail the dimensions that you've identified as components of this high-quality math instruction vision?
1: Sure. And these dimensions, they come from the literature to a large extent. These are kinds of initial categories that I approached the data with as potential codes. Um, but also then we, in the end, used the ones that we found were most prevalent in our interviewees' responses. So the four rubrics that are used to code the interview responses that people give us are role of the teacher, the nature of classroom discourse, nature of classroom, uh, mathematical tasks, and then also student engagement in classroom activity. Um, The first three are obviously well known to people who know math ed literature. Uh, The fourth one was not one that I initially expected to develop, but it was really in response to how often people said student engagement is something they would look for. Mm. That was easily the, the most common response. When we ask people, what would you look for in a classroom to decide whether it's high-quality instruction, very, very often people say, oh, I would look for student engagement. And pretty quickly we decided we need to then follow up by saying engagement in what? Can you say a little bit more about what you're talking about? Right. And then, you know, that's where answers varied. Some would say, well, you know, whatever the teacher asked them to do. And other Mm -hmm. people would describe actual mathematical activity that is fairly rich in nature.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: So those are the four rubrics.
0: Were there some dimensions that you considered including, but that ended up not making the final cut into the instrument as published?
1: Yes. There were a few that I began with at the outset that I expected I might find that people talk about. And those are summarized in in the paper. For example, I thought there might be some talk of mathematical tools that teachers would use with kids. I thought that... There might be talk of social norms or social culture of the classroom, maybe some things about equity, but didn't, in the end, find that those were often mentioned. A few others that were mentioned a little bit were uh, assessment or kind of the use of student thinking. And um, another category that I toyed with was talking about lesson structure. Some people would name particular components they would expect to see, like, oh, I'd like to see a warm-up task, or, oh, I'd want to see an ending assessment activity, or some people would describe kind of the overarching structure of a, of a lesson. But all of those that rubrics that could have been were not mentioned often enough to warrant the development of a full-blown rubric to, to code every interview with. Mm-hmm. And so the idea was to kind of pare it down to just a handful of rubrics that would help us capture the essence of what most responses were
0: right i think that makes sense especially for the purpose of this article does part of you think though that some of these dimensions that have been omitted for the time being are actually needed in a vision of high quality math instruction and then it would just mean the development over time would have to go kind of from zero to 60 like it would have to go from not really showing up at all to somehow showing up later on down the line
1: yeah i guess so i I do think that they are important probably all of them the one that i'm currently interested in the most is is a rubric for characterizing teachers ideas about equity and a project that i'm currently involved in with pittsburgh public schools is i think going to give us a chance to to do that very work because the the professional development program that teachers are involved in is very specifically about equity and um and race in particular and so it's going to offer us an opportunity to investigate teachers' evolving conceptions of equity and i think you know multiple dimensions within equity may show up and we'll uh, we'll collect data on that and hopefully develop a rubric to complement these others
0: mm mm-hmm. so We've kind of already alluded to the levels and the movement over time. So, could you tell us a little bit more about how you thought about these levels of what you call sophistication or, you know, kind of tracking the vision over time? How are those movements kind of captured in your instrument?
1: Mm-hmm. So, I used what the literature has to say as representing the top levels of the rubrics. And then all of the responses that we got from people. Looked at each one in relation to that top level and across compared to each other looked for what seemed to be meaningful distinctions between responses as a way to identify not uh, equal increments but just potential milestones of learning along the way so I assume that probably at the bottoms of these rubrics would be kind of an absence of thinking about something or a commitment to what's typically referred to as traditional or direct instruction, and that over time that might give way to more student participation or reform or inquiry-based tasks, etc. cetera. And um, in the middle of these rubrics are places that I think could be problematic in the sense that It probably represents, if teachers are enacting the things they talk about, probably represents practice that is a little ill-structured and maybe not achieving much, if anything. Um, Mm -hmm. I have a conjecture. I think others suspect the same thing, that there may be a bit of a U-curve in terms of relationship between teachers changing practice and their students' outcomes, Mm -hmm. where if I'm doing a good job of... Of direct instruction, then it's likely that many of my students are learning something. It may be largely procedural in nature, but they're probably taking away something. And then if I shift towards more reform or inquiry-based instruction, it could be that for a time I'm posing these tasks and I'm asking kids to work in groups and I'm not doing a very good job of managing that, and I think that they're just going to invent mathematics on their own and they end up learning practically nothing, really, and yeah. that could be dangerous, I guess. But then eventually you might work through that phase and get to a place where you are proactively facilitating meaningful work and discussion in the classroom where students are learning quite a lot.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So that's the kind of trajectory I imagined I might find in the ways that people talk about it. So I looked for markers of, of those kinds of distinctions as I analyzed the data.
0: Mm-hmm we talked about your word choice with high quality. So another word choice that you made was to use the word sophisticated Mm -hmm. uh, as kind of moving towards the top level. So you're kind of saying, you know, moving towards a, a clear, full articulation of the role of the math tasks in students' experiences or the role of the teacher in supporting students' math learning. So I can kind of see as they move that way, that it is, in a sense, becoming more sophisticated. Like, they can articulate the purposes and the mechanisms and the reasons that these things are important for students' learning. So there's kind of some gain in sophistication. But I'm also imagining a teacher who has a very sophisticated articulation of direct instruction or traditional instruction. Like they can, they can speak in great detail about why they believe procedural teaching is important or why students need to memorize certain things. So to me, I'm just wondering your reaction to that kind of hypothetical musing about a teacher that seems very sophisticated in their vision, but it's just a vision that does not match the one that you've called high quality.
1: Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think that, as I said, the the bottoms of my rubrics perhaps represent traditional or direct instruction, but really they probably just represent fairly typical instruction. And I think that what's typical, folks in math ed often think is direct instruction, but people who are advocates of direct instruction, who think very deeply about how to do it well, would look at what we call direct instruction and say, that's not what we're talking about. So, it's Mm -hmm. really just lousy instruction on, you know, anyone who's thoughtful about pedagogy from whatever perspective they take, they look at that and it's really just not very good. So, I think that the bottoms of the rubrics may be where rubrics for characterizing changes over time in teachers' conceptions of high-quality direct instruction may start, but Mm -hmm. obviously they'd go off in a very different direction. So, yes, I could imagine such rubrics being developed. I wouldn't call them high-quality instruction because I take a particular Mm -hmm. stance on -hmm. um, what we want to to do in classrooms, but um, I could understand somebody else from wanting to call them high-quality instruction for sure.
0: Yeah, I'm now kind of imagining there's kind of this issue of a vision. I'm imagining a person actually looking forward with a vision, so they have kind of a line of sight coming forward from them. So to me, there's kind of one issue of, are they actually oriented towards what you're calling high-quality math instruction and what kind of the field we view as important and high-quality in math teaching? So first of all, are they oriented in that direction? And then how sophisticated are they in actually articulating that vision, which I think is what you capture with your levels of your instrument? But then I think a teacher could be pointed a slightly different direction or a very different direction and then they could also become more sophisticated but they're becoming more sophisticated in their vision and it's actually off to the left you know it's not actually toward what you've set up as your target
1: i think that's true i agree yeah the idea of sophistication is really just i think it's akin to characterizing students strategies when they're solving math problems as becoming more sophisticated and it's really just to suggest that someone's way of describing practice is becoming more thorough, more fleshed out, more inclusive of underlying rationales. And one way that I thought about this that I found really helpful is Jeff Sachs's idea of form and function relationships. Mm -hmm. Jim Spillan has used it to some extent, too. And that's the idea that people may articulate forms of, in this case, teaching mathematics, but may have different underlying functions that they articulate for those forms and so we may hear someone say oh i look for you know hands-on activity in the classroom but when you ask them to elaborate a bit about what that means and why that's important you may get very different responses likewise mm-hmm. for any number of of things that people name that are going to look for in a classroom and so i see you know not just the naming of new forms but also the you know, accompanying that with sophisticated or thoughtful, strong function rationales for those forms as, as being what I take to be a more sophisticated response.
0: Mm-hmm. So now that we have this instrument that you've, you know, developed with a lot of data and put a lot, several years of work into these instruments, which I think are very valuable for the field, could you say a little bit about what these instruments helped you to see? So a little bit of kind of, you know, results that this instrument allowed to bring to the surface.
1: Sure. And I, I do want to suggest that this model of evolving conceptions of practice are, are in and of themselves interesting as a finding, um, or at least mm-hmm. a, a potential model that characterizes how teachers' ideas about practice change. But, yeah. yes, I think they can be put to use as well. Um, in the paper, I lead to a couple of things that they did for us. One was understanding overall trends, and as I look across the the years of of data that we've coded so far, there is increase in these scores over time, which is good news because these districts were providing professional development and adopting curricula that were aligned with and promoting this kind of instruction Mm district-wide. It's good news for the districts. It's also good news for in terms of validity of the instrument. But it also helped us see some differences by role group. Um, There's one example I provide in the paper where teachers in one of the districts have noticeably higher scores on the tasks rubric, the way they talk about mathematical tasks in the classroom. And that's not surprising because that one district had been a longtime user of CMP, and the other three districts were just adopting that text as we began the study. And so these were teachers who had... Several more years of experience of professional development and using these tasks and, de- and developing some conception through using that textbook about what a high quality mathematical activity would be. We also see differences in, uh, there's a difference in role group in the sense that district leaders and math coaches tend to be out ahead in the sophistication of their vision early on, and then mm. following, you know, a couple years later might be teachers and maybe even uh, lagging behind that with principles. So we can see overall trends. We can see differences by district in terms of histories of of textbooks or other things that they're promoting through professional development. We can see differences by role group. But then these rubrics also give us a chance to look at the relation between instructional vision and other constructs of interest. For example, you talked to Annie Wilhelm, and she looked at the relation between teachers' instructional vision and their choice and enactment of cognitively demanding tasks. Um, Mm -hmm. She also included the MKT assessment, the mathematics uh, knowledge for teaching, pencil and paper assessment, in that mix. And then I've uh, recently worked on an an analysis with a colleague at the University of Pittsburgh, Rip Correnti, in which we look at growth models of teachers' practice, and we found that their vhqmi scores at the outset of the of the study predicted change over time in their instructional practice which is i guess not surprising either again good news for validity of the instrument and the idea that an instructional vision actually does predict where teacher's practice goes in the future Mm -hmm. those with more sophisticated instructional visions at the outset were more likely to change in that direction over time Mm-hmm. So those are some of the things that it's allowing us to do. Um, but uh, as I alluded to earlier, I think it's also a potential practical tool. It's not just something for, for researchers to make use of. But I think that it could be helpful for those who are in charge of professional development, again, to to uh, assess and then respond to current understandings and, and instructional visions with what they do with teachers and others in, in professional development.
0: Mm-hmm. I also appreciate it just in terms of its synthesis power, in terms of the field of math education, because you did draw on a lot of different literature that are looking at different aspects of math instruction, but you've pulled them together in this way. Um, you have a, a figure in the paper, figure one, I think, where you're you know talking about how you sort of initially came up with the possible dimensions. And to me, that is useful as a method researcher just as a way to think about synthesizing these ideas and distinguishing and connecting between them.
1: Yeah, I agree. And that was kind of a, a secondary intent of this paper was to to try to pull together a lot of stuff that people have figured out before I came on the scene and just give it back to the field to say, look, I think this is what collectively we're, we've identified as being high-quality instruction. So let's name it and um, get about the business of achieving it at some scale.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I would like to note the figure one I don't think printed very well. <laughs> um, it, it got a little messed up in press, so I would encourage anybody who's interested to download an updated electronic copy of that.
0: Yeah, I feel like we should, as a field, have an online repository of figures that have been messed up in press. Because I even I had one where they even sent the PDF proofs, and they're like, "Here's you know what we're going to be sending to the printer." I'm like, "Looks great." And then even the PDF proofs were not actually what it looked like when it came out. I'm like, what's the point of the PDF proofs if it doesn't actually look like what it will look like on the page?
1: That's a good question.
0: (laughs) Well, my guest is Chuck Munter. We've been talking about his article in Jeremy, Developing Visions of High Quality Math Instruction. Chuck, I have one more question before I let you go and before we wrap up this 2014 season of the podcast. If you weren't in mathematics education, what do you see yourself doing instead?
1: I have a go-to answer that I use when I'm uh, feeling particularly overwhelmed by the challenge of untangling the social aspects of the phenomena that we study, and that's entomology. I think I somehow got interested in bugs as a high school kid when I did my Mm -hmm. freshman bio insect collection. Mm -hmm. But really, that's probably not the answer. I think (laughs) I would be involved in, in making art of some kind, whether it would be... Making music, making visual art, or making theater, perhaps. I think that's really my answer.
0: Hmm. When I was in graduate school at Michigan State, um, some of the graduate offices were in the same building as entomology, and there would be some bug escapes that would happen, and it always made for fun in the hallways. (laughs) Based on those experiences, I think you made the right choice here with uh, mathematics education.
1: I guess. I don't know. I have my doubts some days, but uh, overall, I enjoy it.
0: Well, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us and uh, have a good break.
1: Thanks, Sam. You too.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the MathEd Podcast. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, please use the PayPal donation button at mathedpodcast.com.